um, one that uh, kind of preaches itself, even if I don't say another thing, so I figure I can't go too wrong here. Um, Hebrews 11. We're going to read the entirety, uh, actually a little more than the entirety. We're going through um, chapter 12, verse 2. As you read, um, I think you'll see that Hebrews 11 is well known, the hall of faith, but chapter breaks are not inspired things. And this one in particular, I think the whole point is all these people who have lived and established a good testimony through faith, the whole point is therefore, in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So I can't not read that if I read Hebrews 11. So lengthy passage, but I think it's worth contemplating. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it goes on to talk about what Jesus endured in his display of trusting his father. Um, A.J., I I wasn't here this morning to hear your, (laughs) I had to slip out, I had business with my mom. but I read the outline, talked a little bit at, about it with Ellen. Hospitality is a big deal. Um, 
but I think H.A. would be the first one to say that the object of us gathering as a church, of us being Christians, of, of us being united, united to Christ, is not just to be nice people. That's not the main thing, but it's the fruit of the main thing. Just like the apple hangs from the tree, and, a, and an apple tree that bears no apples isn't a very good apple tree. Um, this chapter, it's, it falls right in line with what, what, with what H.A. was laying out this morning in that the object of being a tree isn't just to be a tree, it's to bear fruit. And that goes right back to uh, the purpose God gave us in creation. I'm just going to uh, read a few things from the early chapters of Genesis. Um, as Genesis chapter 1 is uh, giving the account of the day-by-day -day creation. Um, it says, on the fourth day, the evening and the morning were the fourth day, I'm sorry, this would be the fifth day then, that then God said, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures, let birds, I'm sorry, I, I skipped uh, the one I really wanted to, Talk about verse 12. The earth brought forth grass and herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and then, and then skipped over to that other verse I started. Let the waters abound, verse 20, with the abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, above the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let the earth, let the birds multiply in the earth. We get to the sixth day, he, he brings forth the living creature, the beast of the field. And then God said in verse 26, Let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every other, or over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's this pattern in creation. God creates wonderful things because that's what God does. It was good, and He blesses the things that He creates. And repeatedly, there's this reproduction. They bring forth fruit. They reproduce after their own kind. Man, the bearer of God's image in a way that none of the other creatures or bearers of God, God's image are to be fruitful, reproducing, bearing other images of God. And I think it's not too big of a stretch, although if you, if you read uh, Genesis chapter 1 in isolation, you might just think, oh, it's just talking about having babies, reproduction. But as you read the scriptures and you get the idea of the pattern of what God is doing in all of his creation, it's not just populating the earth with children. It's bearing 
God's image, reproducing God's image in a multitude of ways, which certainly involves having children, but I don't think that's the only thing God had in mind. Um, so that's the, the, the pattern. What God does, he wants it to, to bear fruit, to, to reproduce itself, to bear more fruit, uh, infinite fruit of God's image. And that's the picture uh, that Hebrews 11 paints really well of what we're supposed to understand faith to be like. It's not just a thing that we possess to get us to heaven. It is that. I'm not, you know, I don't mean to denigrate that thought at all. But faith produces all of these things. And he just, the writer of Hebrews just rehearses an outline of biblical history about how faith produced things that were observably uh, bearing, te- bearing testimony to God's goodness. Um, Hebrews 11 is in the context of Hebrews 10. And without belaboring the point, Hebrews 10 um, is, he, uh, through 8, 9, and 10, uh, the writer is, is elaborating on the, the new covenant and some of the differences, the, disti- the distinction between the old and the new covenant. Um, and, he, and in comparing them, he keeps talking all through the book about how the New Covenant excels the Old Covenant. But he's talking to people whom he has had to warn, make sure you're really there. Make sure you're really one of these people who trust in God's goodness in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ's blood. And in chapter 10, as he compares the two, he's telling these people, If we sin willfully, I'm reading verse 26, but you can just listen. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall to mind the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You have need of endurance, he says in verse verse 36. The picture is this. He's talking to people who have a history of faithfulness, even suffering faithfulness, sacrificial faithfulness. But there's some reason to believe, as he writes, that he's writing to people who are wavering, or at least maybe they're wavering. I don't know about exactly what the writer has in mind. He doesn't give us those specifics. But into that context, 
he writes the 11th chapter. I'm talking to you people who might waver. Think about your original union with Christ, your original profession and way of life as you were united to Christ. Think of what you were willing to sacrifice and suffer. Don't, don't leave it behind. Don't be distracted. Don't be tempted otherwise. Don't grow weary. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God if you have not kept the faith. Um, and he says, now, okay, now let me give you some ammunition. How do you hang on to that original zeal? Oh, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Um, I've often said, and I'll continue to say it, um, this is not so much a theological, this is more of an observation of, of English language and how we sometimes express things unfaithfully to the, to the original intent, to believe, to trust, and to have faith are very synonymous terms. And in the scripture, the words that are translated in any of those ways are, are it's not always the same word, but they overlap a lot. Uh, just like, oh, if I ask you to believe me, I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to have faith in me. Um, that's the way that the words, various words in the scriptures are used. They overlap. They're very much in common. But in English, sometimes we use faith as if it's a thing, sort of a magical thing that you just possess yourself. And we've got to be careful. Sometimes it, 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 it would do us well. And I've, I've, I've said it's a good exercise. Just when you read the Bible, instead of wherever you run into by faith or to have faith, substitute the word trust because there's something in English, like I said, this isn't a, a Hebrew or a Greek, this is a commentary on English, but there's something in the way we use the word trust in English, which I think captures the, the idea of what the Bible is usually talking about. It's not having faith, believing in biblical terms, when we're talking about saving faith, it's not just saying, accede to the truth, accept that the truth is true. Um, it's not saying profess faith. We talk a lot in evangelical circles about a profession of faith. Well, professions of faith are wonderful things. They may be sincere or insincere. They are not necessarily synonymous with having faith. There is a distinction. So when we talk about biblical saving faith, we're not talking about professions of faith necessarily. And we're not talking about just accepting something as true necessarily. What we're talking about is trust. Well, by trusting God, by trust in this covenant, in this Savior, in this God, here's what people have done. And they are marvelous things. You know, you, told my kids I can hardly read Hebrews 11 without tears if I really stop and think about it. But there's an inevitability about it also. If something is true and you know it to be true and you trust it deeply, it is not an act of courage or bravery or, or uber fidelity to act upon it. It's simply the only rational thing to do. Um, 
there's a quote I'm fond of from the book, Cry the Beloved Country. And I hope I can briefly enough give you enough of the context. I'm, if you haven't read the book, it's about race relations in South Africa. And there was the murder of a young man who was active in trying to, to represent um, goodness and justice. He was a white man murdered by a black man, but ironically, he was someone who was very active trying to promote uh, just treatment of the black underclass in South Africa. And his father finds his writings. And in his writings, he writes this. Um, I, am no, I shall no longer ask myself if this or that is expedient, but only, I will only ask myself if it is right. I shall do this because I am not, not because I am noble or unselfish, but because I, because life slips away and I need for the rest of my journey a star that will not play false to me. Now the man who wrote this wasn't necessarily a biblical Christian, but he had some really good sense of, of the, the Christian tradition. And he says, I am lost when I start being practical, when I balance this against that, I am lost if I ask if this thing is safe. Will it work out? I'm paraphrasing a little bit and elaborating. Therefore, I shall try to do what is right and to speak what is true. I do not do this because I am courageous and honest, but because it is the only way to end the conflict of my deepest soul. I do it because I am no longer able to aspire to the highest with one part of myself, and to deny it with another. I do not wish to live like that. I would rather die than live like that. I understand better those who have died for their convictions, or we might say who have died for their faith, and have not thought that it was wonderful or brave or noble to die. They died rather than live, that was all. They just died because it was the only thing they could do. They would rather die than live unfaithfully. It wasn't brave or courageous or noble. And there's something of that inevitability in, in Hebrews 11. Live trusting God and what may happen. And then it doesn't even leave us thinking, well, if you trust God, you're going to be a hero of the faith. Yeah, we... We've talked about this as the hall of faith, so to speak, you know, the, the towering giants of biblical history. But in another sense, they simply did the only thing they could do if the presupposition was that they trusted the God who was telling them to do it. You know, for Abraham to have said no to God, no, I think I'll stay at home and stick with my idolatrous family. Well, of course it would have been wrong, but more than wrong, I think the idea that we're supposed to be coming to here is that it would have been irrational if it was really God, the true God, calling you to this strange life of leaving your whole family and going to a strange land. It may, that may, to everybody else, seem, seem crazy, but if it's really God and I trust him, it's not just the best thing to do. It's the only thing to do. Um, and you have the same, you know, same idea with, with Moses. You know, 
who would trade the riches of Egypt for the reproach of this, this God who's, you know, by the rest of the world is seen as a tribal God. And his people are in captivity in Egypt. But if you actually trust him, and following him is not just a good, noble, wise, faithful thing to do, it's the only thing to do. And I think, I think you can even read that sometimes. If, if you read the whole account of Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, I think Moses, at times, almost has a, an attitude of, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but what else can I do? If you have a child and you love your child, it may be weary work to raise that child, but you don't ever really contemplate. I'm tired of having a child. I think I'll get rid of him. If you love something, if you trust something, it is likewise the only thing to do is what that trust leads you to. I'm, I'm not going to make any attempt to, you know, to, to go through all the characters in Hebrews 11, but I think it's worth revisiting um, just this passage from, from verse 32 through verse 37, and I've read it once, so I won't read the whole thing again. But there's a distinct division. There's a section from 32 to the beginning of verse 30, 35, it's all about, oh, we, these people trust God. Look at the triumphs it led them to. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They fought armies valiantly and successfully. Women uh, received their dead, raised to life again. And then there's a, a distinct break. And how much starker, more stark, starker, I'm not sure, how much more stark can the contrast be between women receive their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured that they might, uh, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Always, I, I get to teach this to my sixth graders, and I always want to stop on that phrase. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance. Think about that. What's, what it's saying is imagine yourself being tortured and you can get away. You don't have to keep going through it. You can escape. They were tortured and they could have escaped. That's at least suggested here. And they chose not to. Again, I think if you think through the idea of what it means to really deeply, truly trust someone, it's, they don't accept torture because they're brave and courageous and, and unusually, faith, unusually faithful. They, they don't accept deliverance because it's accepting torture is the only rational thing to do. I, I tell my sixth graders, put a gun to my head and threaten me with death, and I can handle that, I think. You know, boom, it's over instantly, just like that. Tell me I'm going to be tortured. That scares me. But if I can think clearly enough to realize what the trade-off is, torture for a few minutes, hours or days even, 
But the fruit of that, if that's in faith, if that's done as a sacrifice to the Lord Jesus, eternal joy is the fruit of that. It may be hard to go through, but it's not, it's not an irrational choice. It's the most reasonable thing in the world to endure heart, a temporary hardship for an eternal benefit. That's, it, it, as a matter of fact, it's irrational to do otherwise. Now, you know, we humans, and me included, what I really want is to find a third choice. But if those are the choices, the only rational thing to do is to take the torture and pursue the eternal joy that comes from it. Um, also in that passage, as you, as you compare the suffering faithful to the prospering faithful. And then you even step back and look at, your, look at our own context, our own life. I can do this individually right here and the people that are, that are listening to me right now. And there are individual, perfectly, wisely tailored providences in each of our lives. Do I trust that God knows what he's doing? Do I trust that, I, that he knows what he's doing even when right next to me while I'm suffering is someone who is prospering? Do I trust that he knows what he's doing? And in some ways, this is humbling in a way that's even, that can be even harder to accept. Can I accept when God prospers my cause for his own sake while I watch my beloved brother or sister suffer? That has its own difficulties. That's hard. Um, I feel like I've had a trial or two, but on, on the, uh, in the main, I feel like God has just been so tender with me, so kind. Um, there's a, a colleague of ours, of Christopher's and mine, whose daughter was uh, in labor, and there were some difficulties with her labor. And I thought, I just had a miracle grandson by, by all accounts. How would I face Lisa, my friend, if she loses her, her granddaughter? And, and the way I would do it is by thinking about the things that are alluded to and the kinds of things that are alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11 and saying, God has a path for each of us. It is tailored for each of us. And each of us are to follow our own individually tailored path faithfully. Because that's what we do. It is the only thing to do. It is the only rational thing to do. And then there's this whole idea of all of this being accomplished by faith. By faith. Well, just simply, just if I say it is by hard work that I make a fortune, what I'm saying is, oh, well, it is by means of, through the effect of, as the result of, or my wealth proceeds from hard work. Well, you know, 
we rattle off the phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. Well, by trusting the living and the true God, what this is saying here is all of these things, all of this fruit, all of this uh, good testimony of God's goodness and of his character and of his gracious doings in the world proceed from, are the result of, are accomplished through faith and what are the kinds of things that are accomplished through faith? Well, uh, verse 3 says, by faith we understand. We understand. And then it goes, there's a particular thing that's talking about understanding that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We understand that by means of trusting God's word, by means of trusting him. That's how we understand it. We don't somehow figure it out otherwise. I'll skip down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham, or as the result of faith, through trust in this true God, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. It is by trusting him that we obey. Um, And then verse Verse 6, going backward in the text, but forward in my line of logic. Through the means of faith, we understand, we obey. And verse 6, we please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Cannot be pleased. And this is where we get the appropriate relationship between something like what H.A. was preaching this morning and the heart of the gospel. You can't please God by being hospitable. I don't care how hospitable you are. You please God by being in Jesus. And as you trust Jesus because you are in him, fruit grows out of that. And you are hospitable. And I could could, uh, throw other adjectives out there. You are hospitable, you are kind, you are merciful, you are hardworking, you are obedient. There's all sorts of things that we could we could fill in the blank there, but by means of being united to Christ in faith, these other virtues grow out. And um, sometimes we're tempted uh, to think that, well, that makes faith the important things and the the good works that grow out of that, that's incidental. No, that's contrary to to the design that God established. Faith has to be the root, but then the tree has got to grow and fruit's got to be born. It's all one. It is very much modern thinking to compartmentalize everything and say, well, you've got to have faith, and that's how you get saved. But then works is this whole other discussion. Not in the Bible, it's not, at least as I understand it. It is helpful to understand a distinction so that we can work with we can intellectually work and understand one another when we talk about what saves us. Oh, it is faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ who endured the cross despising the shame. The shame is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We worship, we trust his forgiveness that he has paid for with his own blood, and that's the root of everything else. So it's helpful to distinguish, but we've got to be careful not to overdo the distinction because it all goes together. You can't be faithful and not have 
fruit blossom out of that faith. That's not biblical faith. Um, to please God implies more than to obey him. It implies trusting him in such a way that you are led to bear his image in a, in a variety of ways. We have uh, mentioned in the passage, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, they are pleasing God by trusting him. In a pre-law world, uh, they are just bearing God's image. I'm still, I still haven't heard a, a really thorough, complete, comprehensive expl explanation of why Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. His was acceptable, Cain's was not. I know that there's reasons. I know God has the best of reasons, but I don't, I don't think I've ever had it made clear to me exactly what made the sacrifice of Abel's sheep or whatever the animals, I think it was probably sheep, uh, acceptable to God when the fruit of the ground was not. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I've heard several very credible theories. I have my own opinions. But is it absolutely crystal clear to me? No, it's not. But I know that Abel trusted God, and without faith it is impossible. Without trust it is impossible to please him. So I have to think, whatever else was going on, this was a faithful, uh, a trusting offering, and Cain's was offering on his own terms. And... I don't think I'm doing Cain an injustice because if it wasn't, then he would have had no reason whatever to be angry when God corrected him. God was correcting him for his own good. How dare you, says Cain. Um, so Abel, Enoch walked with God. Noah receives divine warning and is selected as the one who's going to deliver the seed of a new race out of the flood. Um, and there's a lot we don't know about how they, how God communicated to them, how they obeyed, but we know that it was, it was trust in the living and the true God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, and Joseph, the patriarchs, pre, pre, pleased God. And this was all pre-law also, but it was all in the structure of God establishing a covenant with a people. We, we know there are several incidences where God communicated to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, Joseph, we know less about communication, but we knew, know he knows what was right, and he knew that he was a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore uh, attached to their God, and they trusted and uh, displayed God's image in a way in, of, of which it can now be said, they did these things by faith. They lived by faith. Um, Moses, we've already alluded to, the lawgiver, faithfully obeying God and representing him. Um, Rahab is interesting. A Gentile woman in the list, a harlot, sounds a note uh, which looks forward to God blessing the Israelites in the conquest of the land, in the fulfilling of his covenant. And then you go on to these other examples. Some, pro some earthly prosper prosperity, some 
humbly accepting difficult fates, but all of them trusting God. And they are the cloud of witnesses, which bear witness to uh, the promise. Read the passage again, you find early in the passage, uh, it alludes to God's promises to his people, plural. And then toward the end of Hebrews 11, right at the end, uh, verse 30, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the definite article promise. And then we find out what that is. We are surrounded by this great a cloud, so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance. And I think implied there is trusting endurance, the race that is set before us, depending, looking to and depending upon Jesus, the author and the finisher, the author and the finisher of our faith who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the primary example of the man who was tortured, not accepting deliverance, that he might obtain the resurrection and then share that with us. So, great passage to contemplate. I hope it's been helpful to think through. I don't really have a particular conclusion to come to other than it's it's about trusting God in such a way that it leads us to bear his image well in Jesus who is the sacrifice for our sins so let's close with a word of prayer father thank you for those who have gone before us